Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Well, thank you very much for your uh, kind invitation to be here. I was at a, a conference not too long ago when the speaker began by saying, as I don't know many of you here, I asked for a list of you all broken down by age and sex. (laughs) But he continued, as I look at you now, I can see that most of you have been broken down by age (laughs) and by sex. (laughs) Well, as this is the Church Times Festival, I would never dream of uh, starting like that. However... Uh, There is a little bit of a link with that speaker to what I do want to do in this time together. I want to think about us as human beings, as being those who are indeed broken down by age, but who are made up by love. I want to think of us as creatures who age shall weary and the years condemn, and yet who are constructed in the same time frame out of our loves. And I want to do that by exploring two poets who are very important to me, R.S. Thomas and George Herbert, for whom this theme was, I think, very deep in their own souls. This will mean taking a look at some of their love poetry to see whether we can find resonance as people who are getting older by the minute and as people who continue to be shaped and surprised by our loving and our being loved. And at this stage of the talk, I always take encouragement from those words of Quentin Crisp, that if at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. (laughs) (laughs) So where did this title come from, Music on the Wind? Well, here is an early poem by R.S. Thomas. I never thought in this poor world to find another who had loved the things I love, the wind, the trees, the cloud-swept sky above, one who was beautiful and grave and kind, who struck no discord in my dreaming mind, content to live with silence as a cloak about her every thought, or, if she spoke, her gentle voice was music on the wind. And then, about the ending of a day in early spring, when the soft western breezes had chased the melancholy clouds afar, as up a little hill I took my way, I found you, all alone, upon your knees, your face uplifted to the evening star. Well, that's R.S. Thomas, but not quite as we know it, perhaps. We think of him more often as the flinty, grumpy Welsh cleric walking the wild, sea-smashed cliffs and staring God or his absence in the eye. The description of Thomas by Seamus Heaney as a kind of Clint Eastwood of the spirit, (laughs) a loner taking on the universe, 
capture something of that perspective, the stark beauty of that flinty Thomas has, I said in the splash of words, been a sort of spiritual life vest to me over the years, keeping my head above water, helping me tread water in the mystery of the divine, as it were, always provoking me to dive deeper than the warm shallows that the church too often offers us as an alternative. But that poem I read is one of the many poems that R.S. wrote to or about his wife, his first wife, Elsie Eldridge. She lived from 1909 to 91. They were married for just over 50 years. Their relationship has been the subject of a lot of puzzled commentary. R.S. had an unhappy relationship with his mother, and that has led to some thinking that he found women threatening or incomprehensible. The fact that the very talented Elsie's artistic career sort of dried up a bit after marriage also makes some focus on what might have been a bit of a tense and frustrating union. Poems such as, For Instance, are referenced. She gave me good food, I accepted. Sewed my clothes, buttons, I was smart. She warmed my bed, out of it my son stepped. She was adjudged beautiful. I had grown used to it. She is dead now. Is it true I loved her? That is how I saw things, but not she. That ambiguous end, that is how I saw things, but not she, is that implying that Elsie didn't see him as loving her? Or is it saying that is how he saw things, but didn't see her for what and who she really was? Or as poetry allows us, does it mean both and a lot more besides? That's a lovely, nice Anglican conclusion. <laughs> Whatever we think, there is a lot of I going on in that poem. Many of the most beautiful poems about Elsie are written after her death. And this can make us wonder whether R.S. became a sort of Thomas Hardy figure who tried, if you remember, to reconstruct a relationship with his wife after her death through his poems in an attempt perhaps to make some amends. But that's not what I read here. Instead, you encounter a tenderness and an honesty. His grief is really a love that has nowhere to go. Listen to his poem, A Marriage. We met under a shower of bird notes. Fifty years passed. Love's moment in a world in servitude to time. She was young. I kissed with my eyes closed and opened them on her wrinkles. Come, said death, choosing her as his partner for the last dance. And she, who in life had done everything with a bird's grace, opened her bill now for the shedding of one sigh. 
no heavier than a feather. There's that first theme again, in servitude to time. That's us creaking more as the minutes pass. And in his love poems, R.S., with, I think, an increasing poignancy, observes the time passing almost with alarm and suddenness and sees that two people share that passing time together and often for a long period. And he reflects on how we put together this fleeting passage of years and ageing with that felt steadiness, even discovery, occasional freshness of a relationship, the silent, unchanging at-homeness with an other. It's not ecstatic, but it's not hostile. It's not passion fueled but it's not paralysed. It is what it is. You'll remember that that poem we just heard says that we met under a shower of bird notes. According to Elsie in her journal, they had, um, well, he, she never says that he proposed to me on the moor. She says, we decided we could live together. <laughs> and while they decided they could live together, apparently a plover was calling. Uh, and it sounds all a bit more contractual than romance. But a plover, of course, is very plaintive with a two-note piping that has a sort of dying fall to it. She also says that on the same day, they found a buzzard that had been caught up in a trap. And one wonders whether all this sets the scene for a relationship that can often sound more like a cohabitation than a conventional loving marriage, whatever that is, of course. A trapped beauty, a dying music. Here's his poem, Together. All my life, I was face to face with her, at mealtimes, by the fire, even in the ultimate intimacies of the bed. You could have asked then for information about her. There was a room apart she kept herself in, teasing me by leading me to its glass door, only to confront me with my reflection. I learned from her even so. Walking her shore, I found things cast up from her depths that spoke to me of another order. Worshipper as I was of untamed nature, she fetched her treasures from art's storehouse. Pieces of old lace, delicate as frost. China from a forgotten period. A purse more valuable than anything it could contain. Coming in from the fields with my offering of flowers, I found her garden had forestalled me in providing civilities for my desk. Tell me about life, I would say. You who were its messenger in the delivery of our child. Her eyes had a fine shame, remembering her privacy being invaded from further off than she expected. Do you think death is the end? Frivolously, I would ask her. 
I recall now the swiftness of its arrival, wrenching her lip down, and how the upper remained firm, reticent as the bud that is the precursor of the flower. This poem also leads us into that other theme that emerges in these poems, that of the painful awareness of some imbalance in this relationship, the sense that she's holding back somehow, not conventionally in love, but as we heard, withdrawing graciously but inflexibly into a privacy guarded by a glass door in which R.S. only sees his own face. What we discern here is Elsie as an absolutely necessary presence for him, but some empty space in their relationship that won't disclose whether that dependence is mutual or not. Therefore, I think there is a shocking vulnerability to these poems. He knows his need of her. He doesn't know if she needs him. Elsie wrote in her journal that as a rule of thumb for marriage, keep your hearts together and your tents separate. <laughs> well, were the gaps, the spaces, the silences of their marriage part of the togetherness or a separateness? Is intimacy being fended off or is it being found in this exercise in shared living? If I can put it like this, as part of each other, but always a bit apart from each other. Listen to Aris's golden wedding. Cold hands meeting, the eyes aside. So vows are contracted in the tongue's absence. Gradually, over 50 long years of held breath, the heart has become warm. Cold hands, held breath, warmth. And then his evening. The archer, with time as his arrow, has he broken his strings that the rainbow is so quiet over our village? Let us stand then, in the interval of our wounding, till the silence turn golden and love is a moment eternally overflowing. There's another ambiguous phrase, the interval of our wounding. Is this standing together looking at the rainbow some interval in the wounding they do to each other through their shared life? Or is there relationship the interval between the wounding of life and its passing, time's arrow, eternity overflowing? Answers, please, on a postcard. Now, those of you who know R.S.'s other poems about his other marriage, as it were, that to God, will probably be hearing some very familiar overtones here. Elsie is, to R.S., up to a point, the presence he depends on, but she's also a wife and woman absconditor, despite being face-to-face -face with him at mealtimes. She has an unknowable privacy 
beyond reach, behind that glass door, reflecting his own face. Similarly, God is the Deus absconditus, the God who R.S. cohabits with, but who also brings silences, absence, a lack of intimate proximity into his life through this relationship. His love poems become elegies. So do many of his God poems, a presence in absence in which love tries to fill in the voids and honesty has to do the rest. R.S., you see, I think, is a poet of counterpoint, a poet in which sounds of two possible readings always meet. Two distinct melodies create a texture. The readings are those of God's absence and his presence, his silence and his resonance, his shadow and his brightness. And that texture for me is certainly a faith that may well be still sustainable in the 21st century. His poems rub up against each other, and that uneasy collision of voices reciprocates the turmoil of us, the reader, as we face the pleasant lies, the burnt-out words about a vindictive or unicorn god that have eaten into us over the years and now let us down, as well as the gnawing feeling that we don't quite believe our unbelief. Thomas undresses our minds and our souls in this simple, sometimes harsh, unsentimental, ambiguous clarity. Yes, there can be such a thing. Ambiguous clarity. He does this as much with the love of his wife as with the love of his God. He does this with the doubts about the love of his wife for him and the doubts about God's love for the world. Similarly, the doubts about his own love of them. Is it true I loved her? You might also have read in his poems, Is it true I loved God? One of his most beautiful poems about Elsie, to my mind, is this. I look out over the timeless sea, over the head of one calendar to time's passing, who is now open at the last month, her hair wintry. Am I a catalyst of her metal, that at my approach her grimace of pain turns to a smile? What it is saying is, over love's depths, only the surface is wrinkled. It's poignant to know that after 50 years of togetherness, a very frail Elsie, returning home from hospital during her last illness, was carried over the threshold of their home by her husband. A very late nuptial gesture. An ending and a beginning indistinguishable with the one R.S. would describe in another poem as my luminary, my morning and evening star, my balance of joy in a world that has gone off joy's standard. 
As I say, love and time passing were inseparable to RS, and that vow of till death us do part is shown in its courageous beauty by the last love poem I want to read of his, Dusk, in which Elsie is surely the lily, a majestic, sturdy, fragrant stem in his barren and clift landscape. Night, that to the stars says, open. To other flowers, to this lily in particular, says, shut. I was in bud once, clenched on a thought, until day dawned, peeled back my petals. I was all stamen. Love came to me for my pollen, made honey in a brief comb. Was it a day? A year? Night that has kept its distance, that says to the blossom in a dark orchard, open says now to me here, close. R.S. is not always appreciated as a love poet, but I hope these poems to his wife will show you they deserve wider reading. After all, this was the poet who said of himself in an unpublished poem, all my life, I tried to keep love from bursting its banks. Love is the fine thing, but destructive. I strove to contain it. In the end, I wonder if he thought God was rather doing the same. So whilst looking at R.S. poems of love, I've wanted to argue that the shards of truth he picks up and examines about his marriage and home life evoke a similar sharp and distant nearness to the relationship his experiences he has with his God. And it's to George Herbert that I secondly want to turn to explore that love of and love for God that very clearly influenced R.S. himself as a poet and priest. George Herbert was, of course, a priest living 400 years before R.S. He, too, was a poet, and he was married to Jane, who was clever, 10 years younger than him, robust in health, and, according to Aubrey, was a handsome boner rober and ingenious. Boner rober basically means good stuff. So we taking it, I suppose, that she was beautiful. They married in 1629, and Herbert was dead only four years later. So we're not talking of a 50-year relationship here. She mourned him for six years after he died, and though she had a second husband, who she also outlived, she said that George's name must live in her memory Till she put off mortality. Now, Evelyn Underhill once said that at the end of the day, the only interesting thing about religion is God. 
And Herbert's 170 or so poems are about God and also en route about what he called our working breast, the place of our conflicted and confused hearts. His poems are love poems, but they are about loving or trying to love God and God's love for us. But like R.S. Thomas on married love, Herbert's love poems are not trite, they're not idealistic, and this, I think, is helpful. We're living, I think, at a time when honest complexity is being exchanged for a lot of dishonest simplicity. Poets such as R.S. and Herbert are good vaccinations in such a time because they were unafraid of honest complexity and the complexities of honesty. And they didn't shy away from them, especially when it came to love, whether of God or your partner or your neighbour or yourself. I've just brought out this small introduction to George Herbert called My Sour Sweet Days, which a kind friend looked at and thought I'd brought out a Chinese cookbook. <laughs> he thought these were bean sprouts. <clears throat> I brought it out because I was finding as I go around, um, I don't know, theological colleges, parishes, churches, and so on, that not everyone knew who Herbert was or even heard of him. So I thought a very simple introduction might be helpful, 40 poems, short 500-word reflections after each one, very good for Lent. <laughs> I'll be signing it after this talk. <laughs> My prayer as I wrote it was, lead us not into interpretation. <laughs> and I've tried to leave the poems fairly free range, but give some pointers when the vocabulary is unfamiliar or the density of the poem might be getting us a bit stuck. I haven't gone heavy on analysis, lest it become more like combing the hair of a corpse than inviting people into this exciting cave, giving them their own torch to have a look. Now, in some ways, I do hope the book will be useful for Lent. Lent is the snowfall in the soul that we are given. With that snow, um, a landscape looks different. We have to re-navigate. You can see your own miraculous breath in the exciting chill. It's just like poetry. In fact, Wallace Stevens, the American poet, said we ought to like poetry the way children like snow. I believe Herbert's poems do help us reimagine who we are and who God is. He's a poet very aware of his own ability to get puffed up, to get short-tempered. He was said by his brother to have had a bit of a short fuse. Uh, he also notes in more than two or three poems, he obviously had a bit of a fondness for, for nice clothes. He always talks about being well-dressed. He knows the danger of his own fluency, his self-harming certainties, and he wonders, and I, I think this is important for all the clergy out there, he wonders how he can break through what he's good at. It's just become a little too comfortable. 
He's open about his agitated mind. He calls his thoughts, in one uh, place, a case of knives. And you'll know, maybe, the Carl Jung comment that through pride we are ever deceiving ourselves, but deep down below the surface of the average conscience, a still, small voice says to us, something is out of tune. While Herbert, who was a very skilled musician, I do believe was trying to tune himself to heaven's humility all his life. Well, certainly his later life. And he has a candid honesty about the very mixed results. This is, he says, but tuning of my breast to make the music better. I think George Herbert can sort of invite you into an empty room and ask who you are in there when there's no furniture, no props. And I say in the preface to this that he's a poet worth knowing for anyone interested in humanity's inner being, the benefits of honesty, the mystery and love of God, and what can be made of religion in an age of projections. Like all the other metaphysical poets, he thinks in metaphors, fresh and very free. He certainly, like R.S., thought a lot about love in a mortal climate. Here is his virtue. Sweet day, so cool, so calm, so bright. The bridal of the earth and sky. The dew shall weep thy fall tonight, for thou must die. Sweet rose, whose hue, angry and brave, bids the rash gazer wipe his eye. Thy root is ever in its grave, and thou must die. Sweet spring, full of sweet days and roses, a box where sweets compacted lie. My music shows ye have your closes. And all must die. Only a sweet and virtuous soul, like seasoned timber, never gives. But though the whole world turn to coal, then chiefly lives. Scholars debate whether Herbert is a major minor poet or a minor major poet. It doesn't get us very far. What's obvious is that he's a very loved poet. Richard Baxter, in 1681, said that Herbert speaks to God like one that really believeth in God. Heart work and heaven work make up his books. This has made him appeal to a wide range of people. Charles I was reading George Herbert in prison, and Oliver Cromwell's chaplain was recommending him to his friends. Coleridge said Herbert helped him with a tendency to self-contempt. Herbert has this familiar voice with a familiar world, but a recognised world infused in it that's wrestling that other world for which religious faith is desiring, which prayer is trying to find a path to. I find that... Uh, Herbert is always, although the terms and the phrases are familiar, it's a world we recognise, there is a subversion of reality. 
an underlying version that you're being called to. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. Uh, it's what's drawing the heart. And uh, his poetry can often be like a sort of truancy. It's like a little wild flower that's been planted amongst all the wheat. And you, you suddenly want to stop uh, and look at its beauty. Michael Longley, of course, once said uh, famously, where he was asked, where does all your wonderful poetry come from? And he said, if I knew where poems came from, I'd go and live there. <laughs> and uh, I think um, Herbert is helping us go and live there. Certainly one of Herbert's lasting influences on me is his insistence that God is the loving friend of human beings, not some distant, overbearing tyrant. That's why his poems are love poems. God is the one who takes his hand smiling. Salvation for Herbert is the cure for our self-observant perfectionism. That noise within that creates chaos around us. You know, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And he knew that. Hell hardly gets a mention in his poems. Herbert knows that he's secure within the love of his friend and nothing will ever get in their way. He differs, I think, from John Donne here. What I love about Herbert is that this belief in God as friend means he doesn't have to put on some pious pedestal act. He just talks, often bantering, often berating God for the painful failures and hardness of life and our feelings and the Christian living. He looks at himself and how he treats his friend and concludes in one poem, Use I not my foes as I use thee. And then in one beautiful poem, he talks about God, his friend. In this love, more than in bed, I rest. And he talks about God's love being where he roosts and nestles like some old hen. This is the poem that the title of the book comes from. Ah, uh, my dear angry Lord, since thou dost love, yet strike, cast down, yet help afford, sure, I will do the like, I will complain, yet praise, I will bewail, approve, and all my sour, sweet days I will lament and love. There's an audacious boldness and unflinching honesty here about good and bad, a disarming playfulness, actually, in this conversation he has with God. This is a beautiful, faithful antidote to a lot of the cold and tortured talk of God in many of our churches today. It is a corrective to those warm shallows of the Church of England that I talked about earlier. Any talk about God as if God were akin to yoga or basket weaving, <laughs> some hobby you take up on a Wednesday evening for self-improvement. Herbert is never afraid of putting the odd back into God, and he does it with a colloquial energy. And if you regret the fact that Christianity in our day so often appears to be 
an unappealing choice between either ignorance on fire or intelligence on ice, <laughs> then Herbert is for you because a critical and a loving fidelity come together. God for Herbert is never an object we fuss over and fall out about. God is the subject to whom my life must relate most seriously and deeply. God is not the object of our knowledge. God is the cause of our wonder. God's goodness is shown in what Blake called the minute particulars, not in any abstractions. And of course, good poetry will always take you to life's intimate immensities and also life's immense intimacies. Poetry never wants to get to the end of our thinking too quickly. And uh, I find that very deeply in, in Herbert's writing. And I hope if you read these 40 poems from his The Temple that you'll discover you like Herbert, the person. W.H. Auden actually wrote, um, I think that any reader of his poetry will conclude that George Herbert must have been an exceptionally good man and exceptionally nice as well. I hope you'll be grateful to him for opening his soul as a mirror in which we can often recognise ourselves and learn more about that love that he knew is always seeking to find us beyond the glass door in the heart. God, I think, in Herbert is always um, anticipatory. He's always a few steps ahead of Herbert, waiting for him to catch up so that they can have a rest together. And this was an influence, I have no doubt at all, on R.S. Thomas. Um, such a fast God, always before us and leaving as we arrive. Uh, this idea that God is like some sort of rabbit that you, you put your hand down the hole and try and grab and, oh, he's gone. But you can still feel the warmth where he's been. It's a very Herbert uh, anticipatory God. Many of uh, Herbert's poems are psalm-like, love poems, speaking to us of every mood and complexity. One gets a sense that um, Herbert's formality as a poet, and he is amazing in, in that he hardly repeats any poetic form. All the 170 poems nearly have different forms. Um, within that formality, there is this raw tenderness quite often and uh, unease. I think he was a person at some peace with his lack of peace. Uh, his faith feels like an anchor that occasionally dislodges, but keeps him in the harbour nevertheless. Listen to this. This is uh, him reflecting on his own uh, poetic exercises. When first my lines of heavenly joys made mention, such was their luster, they did so excel, that I sought out quaint words and trim invention. My thoughts began to burnish, sprout, swell, curling with metaphors, a plain intention, decking the sense as if it were to sell. Thousands of notions in my brain did run, offering their service if I were not sped. I often blotted what I had begun. This was not quick enough and that was dead. Nothing could seem too rich to clothe the sun 
much less those joys which trample on his head. As flames do work and wind when they ascend, so did I weave myself into the sense. But while I bustled, I might hear a friend whisper, how wide is all this long pretense? There is in love a sweetness ready penned. Copy out only that and save expense. <laughs> Isaac Walton, whose biography of Herbert is great to read but maybe historically a bit dodgy, says that as Herbert reached the end of his life, aged only 40, and having been ordained for only three years, by the way, he packed up um, his as yet unpublished poems, sent them to his friend Nicholas Ferrer at Little Gidding, and he said if Nicholas thought the poems were any good, then he left them to him. If he thought they weren't, he could put them on the fire. Ferrer kept well away from the hearth, thank goodness. Herbert talks in his letter about his poor, silly soul, and says, these poems, he says, are about the many spiritual conflicts that have passed betwixt God and my soul before I could subject, subject mine to the will of Jesus, my master, in whose service I have now found perfect freedom. At the end of this collection, which he, he put in, into very close order, the final poem was simply called Love. Because for him, I think, love had to be the last word for the Christian. I think Herbert is a good companion to examine the journey of your soul with. We read him and we wonder which compass we've picked up in life and where it's leading. Heart work and heaven work, very in evidence. So I do believe Herbert writes love poems, but they are love poems to and about God. And as such, I think, they reflect the way R.S. speaks of his love for Elsie in many ways. But, and here's my terribly clever academic point, whereas the way R.S. talks of his relationship with Elsie and sounds like the one he has with God, so Herbert talks of his relationship with God and it sounds rather like the one he has with his wife or children, or friends. And what Herbert understands at the end of the day is that against all the odds, God does love him. And that to try and stop God loving is as futile as trying to stop a waterfall being wet. You can't do it. So let's end with that poem called Love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, 
Ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. It's been said by some to be one of the most beautiful poems in the English language. And uh, it would be very interesting to see what happened to the poem if you changed the word love for the word God. Even at the very end, I could go on about this poem, but I won't because there isn't time, but even at the very end, you, you still get this sense that he's, he isn't quite able to celebrate this love. He's invited to taste, but he sits and eats eat and taste a little bit different. You still feel that he's still trying to settle into this belief that he's actually lovable and loved. Um, many of us think, I think, that there's something that God must hate about us. And Herbert in that poem shows quite the contrary, that um, God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you so much he doesn't want you to stay like that. And when Herbert placed those poems together for his friend to look at. As I say, he placed that poem right at the end. The message was very clear. The only word worth pursuing, if you want to understand God, is love. But it is a crucible that melts us before it fuses us with truth. They say that religion is lived by people who are afraid of hell but spirituality is lived by people who have been through hell. Well, R.S. and George Herbert are poets then of the spirit. And without them, any talk of love, whether for partner or for God, would be all the poorer. They are music on the wind. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.